and welcome to Conversations With. I'm Courtney. And I'm Keith. And we are the clinical team here at Burton's Academy. With our combined passion for monitoring and ventilation, we're here to rewind and remind you on the foundations and principles used to form the knowledge and understanding in everyday anaesthesia. And in this week's episode, we're talking about mechanical ventilation. So I'm here with Keith, and if you have heard of the Merlin ventilator, the SAV ventilator, or the Tifonius, then you will be able to put all of those three ventilators together with Keith's name because he designed them all. So this is very much one of Keith's favorite topics and bread and butter. So I'm really excited to go through everything about mechanical ventilation with you today, Keith. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, it's good to talk about this subject. It's something obviously I spent a lot of time thinking about over the last few years. Um, but I would like to say at the beginning of this talk that this is an introduction. Uh, it is a vast subject, uh, ventilation. And I'd like this podcast to be about, you know, how do you approach mechanical ventilation? What do you need to know? What are the basics that means that someone with no prior knowledge could hopefully, you know, after listening to this, at least approach a ventilator with the knowledge that they could set it up and start ventilating and have some confidence in what they're doing. Perfect. I think, I think there's a lot of fear, isn't there, for ventilation? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think people yeah. are worried they're going to do do harm, but absolutely, they feel like they're going to if they if they make this dial uh, setting slightly wrong, the animal's going to go, you know, and that, that's it or whatever. It's going <laughs> to gonna pop their lungs or. Whatever. I think there's a real fear, you know, um, and it's not, an, and, and I think that is justified fear um, because to really understand ventilation, there's a huge number of topics that have to be brought into play. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. It's like, um, you know, like learning to drive, isn't it? You, you know, um, it, it's a complex subject, but everybody masters it. And you know, once you've got it, it becomes second nature. And I think what we got to do is we can talk about ventilation for people that have not been involved with ventilation before we will need to get them past that that fear element of you know if you get in a car and don't know what to do you're just scared about crashing it stalling it bumping it whatever we need to get over that fear of approaching a ventilator setting it up and, and driving a ventilator so that hopefully we'll accomplish that during the course of this this morning i think so i i, I do enjoy using the ventilator to the point now where i almost can't imagine doing an anesthesia and not having one at least close by. Um, so although I'm happy for my patients to breathe spontaneously, I just love the option of being able to provide efficient ventilation for them. So yeah, I'm quite excited to get started. So our last podcast that we just did, that was on manual ventilation. So we talked about how to do IPPV safely and what kind of tools you can use in practice to do that. So in circuit manometers and IPPV button valves, things like that. So just to recap, Keith, would you mind telling us about the kind of the normal ways that we breathe and then what happens when we start mechanical ventilation? Yeah, absolutely. We can just recap on that. So Normal um, ventilation, so the process of, let's start with inspiration. Inspiration is an active process. We flatten our diaphragm and we extend our, or, or contract our external intercostals. And basically 80% of the effort is done by the diaphragm. So nice, quiet breathing for you or I, or dog or cat, horse, cow, pig, whatever, at rest, sat there. most of that effort has been done by the diaphragm. So diaphragm's flattening, it's basically increasing the volume within the thorax. Um, and so uh, increased volume, um, same amount of air must mean reduced pressure. So it creates a negative pressure. And because of that, atmospheric air um, pressure pushes air down into the lungs. So we consider it as you know sucking air into the lungs, which is what it does. It fills up the lungs, they expand. 
and then expiration at rest is purely passive. You just stop that that inspiratory effort, relax, and then everything collapses, recoils, elastic recoil of the chest, collapses the chest, air gets forced out of the lungs, and expiration. Um, and as we mentioned in that, that podcast, that has some really beneficial effects. The negative pressure uh, does two things. It draws air into the lungs, and of course, it also helps to draw air, of blood, if you like, into the chest cavity. Because the chest is a compartment, it means that um, if you get a negative chest, uh, pressure in that compartment, it'll pull blood from adjacent compartment like the abdomen or the uh, or the head and neck. So we've got some real positive uh, effects of normal spontaneous breathing. And then what we're going to do when we ventilate is we're going to change that process completely. We're going to push air into the lungs. So now the diaphragm is going to stay uh, domed and, and at rest because it's not part of um, this process. So we're forcing that diaphragm to flatten. We're forcing the rib cage to expand. And to do that, we need to put in volume. Uh, it's not really the volume that does the 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 work. It's the pressure that results, and that's the one that we need to um, consider. So we need a certain amount of pressure. It has to be positive pressure to inflate that chest, and we've got a very different dynamic. Now we've abolished that thoracic pump mechanism we talked about that's going to have an impact on cardiac output during the pressure phase um, i just want to put that in context if you've got one second of inspiration and five seconds of expiration you're only pressurizing and compromising venous ret return for one second and then you've got five seconds of relaxation we'll come on to talk about that later but that's you know that's the ie ratio really if your ie ratio gets too low like one to one then you're not really allowing enough time for normal blood flow to to return so that's that's why we get concerned about it so we're going to have to consider a number of things really time for inspiration pressure that we're allowed to achieve in inspiration the volume that we're going to deliver during inspiration and uh, those three factors are one of the, the main factors we need to consider um, before we even get to that point we need to have, to have a little bit of understanding about some physiology very basic physiology about the spontaneous breathing because we're going to take over that spontaneous breathing. So we've either got to abolish or it has to be abolished by some mechanism. It may be that the anesthesia is sufficiently um, uh, intense or heavy that the uh, normal respiratory pattern is, is abolished anyway. So you give them such a heavy amount of anesthetic that they don't breathe. Not ideal, but that you know, that kind of <laughs> no, kind of indicates the um, indicates the process that's going on. So anesthesia depresses respiratory uh, spontaneous respiration, and we're just taking it a step further. We want to take over that uh, that respiratory control. So to do that, we have to really understand what's maintaining that respiratory control in the conscious or lightly anesthetized patient. And th there's not too much to to worry about. We've got to concern ourselves with CO2 levels and stretch receptors. I think there's two main main points. So we've got central receptors for CO2 um, in the medulla itself. We've got some receptors in the aortic and carotid bodies. Again, not, not really worried about the detail. Um, just to know that the central receptors uh, really pick up incredibly fast changes in CO2 levels. Okay. Um, and they are specific to CO2, and the carotid and aortics are uh, responding to 
proton levels of acidity as well as CO2. But let's just stick with what goes on in the medulla. Increased CO2 uh, will lead to a stimulation of the medullary center and you'll get an increase in rate and depth of breathing. Okay, so there's that process. So we could think then, okay, so if we were able to reduce the CO2, then we reduce the drive. The drive would mean that there'd be less um, uh, ventilation rate would decrease, the ventilation depth would decrease. So we've got a control mechanism there. And then we can look at the other feedback process, which is the um, strict receptors in the um, the linings of the major or the larger airways, not down at the tiny um, alveolar uh, sort of um, connecting airways, but the smaller bronchioles, where if you dilate them, stretch receptors uh, feed back to, again, back to the medulla. Um, so as you breathe in spontaneously, you expand the lung, those airways um, um, expand. There are also stretch receptors in the um, thoracic musculature as well, in external uh, thoracics have those stretch receptors. Um, so we're going to get those starting to fire as they get stretched and as the lung airways expand. And those will feed back to the medulla, um, and that's going to limit inspiration. That's going to lead to an end of inspiration. So the normal process is medulla starts inspiratory process. It waits for the feedback signals from the um, stretch receptors, determines that they're now firing back fast enough and, and within sufficient strength to limit inspiration, stops inspiration, expiration then begins. Is that, if I kind of go back in my memory and think about keywords that I keep seeing in textbooks, that has a, a name, doesn't it? That has a reflex. Yeah, that's the a, Herring Brewer reflex. Yes, exactly. That's so that part, is where. That's the stretch receptor that's reflex. That's the stretch receptor. Herring Brewer reflex. Yeah. Which is present in you know, uh, all mammals. It's present, I believe, in, in birds. I'm not too sure about its presence in all reptiles because they're a bit odd. But it's certainly present <laughs> in um, in all our, in our uh, mammals and birds. So, yeah. So the Herring Brewer reflex is there. And that's what I'm describing. And that's. <clears throat> That's one of our control pathways. So you can imagine that if we were to reduce the CO2 levels in a patient and we were to increase the um, herring burrow reflexes or, or, or act on that reflex, then we might actually start to suppress the medulla's own desire to control breathing. And that's exactly what we do. And there's one physiological aspect which is very important. If you during spontaneous breathing, if the stretch receptors continue to fire once you've gone from the neural phase of inspiration <clears throat> to the neural phase of expiration, you get a much more rapid response to to those stretch receptors, uh, th that information. So we can we can exploit that. What we're saying is that if if we tune into um, the patient's breathing pattern and we create an inspiratory uh, uh, pressure during what would be the animal's normal inspiration then and we we take that past the point where the brain says we've now gone to expiration by keep stretching the, the lungs in other words keep keeping it inflated it'll have a much much greater effect on suppressing the medulla so what does that come down to in real terms it comes down to you want to hopefully synchronize your ventilation with the patient to start with so that it's not fighting the ventilator and that's kind of primary prom, uh, premise, and then 
you want to make the, the breath big so that everything is stretched. And you just want to hold it a little bit longer than the brain thinks the inspiration should last. So we're just going to overstretch slightly. And then that has a, a much more profound effect on suppressing that, um, that inspiratory drive. <clears throat> So a long, long-winded way of saying <laughs> that um, what what we need to do is look at CO2 levels and and the, and and exploit the the uh, stretch receptors reflex with the Herring Brewer reflex, and then um, and we'll talk about this later. Uh, but you know, you'll basically then have an animal which loses its respiratory drive, um, and ventilator will then have control. And there's one consequence from that: you had a very efficient brain doing all the feedback for you, looking at CO2 levels in the body, modulating or moderating uh, respiratory rate and depth all very nicely to keep CO2 levels absolutely normal. And now you've taken away that, that capability of the brain. So the big thing then is that it's all down to you. You've suppressed that respiratory drive. You're now the part of the feedback. You have to make sure that you're given sufficient minute volume and more particularly sufficient alveolar volume that the patient gets enough oxygen and is able to get rid of CO2 and maintain it at normal levels. And the only way you're going to do that is to have a capnograph. So you can ventilate without a capnograph, but you're absolutely flying blind. Mm. Um, so you really need to have a capnograph. Um, so that's it. A little bit of physiology. We just need to exploit those processes and then we could we can take over uh, ventilation. Thankfully, in my anaesthesia experience, I found that most of the patients I've wanted to ventilate were not doing it in the first place. So I've, I felt quite quite lucky. You know, they've got a really low respiratory rate and they're not taking big volumes of breath. And I start to ventilate them and their CO2 flies up. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, even though it was like 55 or 60 millimeters of mercury, you still weren't taking a breath, probably because you're a little bit too deep or something like that. So thankfully, I've not had too much of a problem taking over some patients, but I, I remember especially in um, kind of when I had a patient anaesthetized for imaging and having to keep them still, keep their thorax still during CT. And these are normal, you know, then spontaneously breathing patients and absolutely having to exploit their um, their normal tidal volume size, stretching them and quick making their respiratory rate go really quick just so that we brought that CO2 down so that they'd stop breathing for the 20-second scan where they couldn't move at all. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thankfully, two two things in my experience. Sometimes I just don't breathe, and that's why I'm like, right, straight onto the ventilator. Um, and then I found it, yeah, quite easy to actually exploit their normal drive to breathe. So it's not as scary, I think, as people no, it, it isn't. No, and even with a, you know, even if you've got a, a bitch bay that's coming in, a healthy dog coming in for an elective routine procedure, you, you can fairly easily, if you've got a ventilator and you understand how to use it, um, take over their breathing quite happily. It, it's yeah. not a particularly difficult process. So I think that that's kind of a little myth we need to dispel that you need to use neurovascular blocking agents or you need mm. to have some sort of special anesthesia technique to be able to ventilate but you you don't you need to have a, a procedure that enables you to exploit those those mechanisms that we've just discussed yeah and then understanding think, to do so yeah and um, we, we well, i think we did cover in the last talk about manual ventilations reasons why we might want to ventilate so rather than go over those in length now um i think we just say you know there there are the patients which are um you know sick you know because they're uh, and therefore unable to breathe you know sufficiently they may have some other pre-existing problems they may have you know 
ruptured diaphragm, they may have um, thoracic problems, they may have respiratory problems, they may have polyoxygenation. We'll kind of um, accept that these patients need mechanical ventilation rather than go into the uh, reasons why they might want, because I think we covered that slightly mm-hmm. before. We did, yeah. Yeah. So so we've got a patient that needs to be uh, ventilated now, and you're presented with an animal, and you think, okay, you need to ventilate this. So I've got to give it some air. I've got to, you know, every breath has got to have a volume delivered to it. Um, that raises some questions, doesn't it, really? How much and in what time and at what frequency? And I think those are some of the first questions. And then the how much has to sort of tie in with, if I put this in, and, and as we said earlier, this is going to create positive pressure, how much pressure? And I think this is what worries people. <clears throat> Because you can't look at an animal and do a little calculation. You can't weigh it. You can't measure it. You can't take its surface area or its, or its total body volume. You can't do anything and say, with accuracy, the pressure that I need to ventilate the animal is this based on some parameter that you can measure. You can't. But what you can rely on is that across the species, from mice to horses or even elephants, the range is pretty limited. You know, your mouse is going to be ventilated happily at five or six centimetres of water pressure. And your horse is going to be happily ventilated at 20 to 25. Now, that's that's only a range from five to 25, to something that weighs 30 grams to something that weighs you know, 500, 600 kilos. So we haven't got a lot to play with. So um, it becomes reasonable to make some assumptions, initial assumptions, um, uh, some starting points, and I think that's where what we maybe want to look at now is let's start. Let's start with small animal practice because I think most of our listeners will be in small animal practice. We can talk about horses or exotics or whatever at another point, but let's start with small animal practice. So actually, most things there are going to weigh, let's be generous, between 200 grams for those those people who are brave enough to be doing some sort of <laughs> um, rodent surgery or um, or exotic surgery. You know, up to what 60, 70 kilos, yeah. something like that. So we're going to go from yeah, a few hundred grams up to um, 60, 70 kilos. So I'm going to kind of go out on a little bit of a limb and, and put the figure of 10 out there because I think 10 is a nice, easy number to remember. Um, that 10 is 10 centimeters of water pressure. Okay. So what I'm going to say is if you don't know really what to expect, and it's not a tiny mouse, um, and it's not a horse, then aim for 10. And then from that point, we'll make some adjustments. Okay, But if you aim for 10, you're not going to go far wrong. <clears throat> you're certainly not going to do any damage, um, and you may underventilate some, but you're not going to do any damage. So that's a nice starting point, 10. Uh, and you know, the human brain is... It likes comfort. Um, I think 10 is comfortable. You know? mm-hmm. And I'm going to use 10 again for our tidal volume. Okay, so 10 mils per kilo. And I know there'll be aficionados, people out there who will say that, oh, well, it should be you know, 9.8 in this species and it should be 12 mils per kilo if you're doing this. But yes, I accept all that. But let's, if we're going to approach ventilation, let's start with 10 centimeters. Sorry, 10 mils per kilo. Yeah. So my... 15.6 kilo dog comes in wants to um, wants to be ventilated or needs to be ventilated. Uh, I'm just going to go okay. 156 mils, 
15.6 times 10. Everybody can do that. It's a nice, comfortable figure. We'll, again, we'll moderate it later, but 156 mil. So, yeah, I'm going to set my ventilator to either 150 or 160. That gives me a good starting point. So we're starting to get there now because it doesn't matter what ventilator you approach, um, unless we're talking about something called pressure control ventilation, which I don't want to get into at the moment. I want to talk about uh, volume control ventilation for all of these. So volume control ventilation is where uh, air flows into the patient at a continuous rate normally. Um, and we set a volume um, and we can cycle that, that device in a number of ways, pressure cycling, volume cycling, time cycling. But basically it's called volume control ventilation. We're going to put a volume into the patient. So, so there we are. We now have a volume that we're going to set on this machine. So we can go up to the machine, whatever it is, and set the tidal volume. Bang, there you are. 155 mils, 160 mils for our patient. And we know when we start ventilating, we're going to want that to get to about 10 centimeters of pressure. So we'll look to see what the pressure is when we start ventilating. <clears throat> We've got some other choices to make. We've got to now consider the inspiratory time. We've got 155 mils stay to deliver. How long should we deliver that? Is it half a second, one second, two seconds, three seconds? A, what's the best to use? What's the, what's the way we arrive at that figure? And what are the implications of straying outside of it? So again, keep it simple and stick with one second. And between basically five kilos and 45 kilos, you're not going to go wrong. And outside of those limits, you're going to need to just change it as we go. But if you're unsure, unexperienced, start with one second. Okay? Because you and I breathe in about one second. Yeah. Dogs and cats breathe in about one second. Okay, so the cat might be 0.9, but 0.8, but it isn't going to make a huge difference um, when you're ventilating. But a cat is normally breathing in, in 0.8 seconds and you give it one second inspiration. So let's start with one second. So now we've got some very simple setup procedures now. One second for our inspiratory time. And let's just think about the implications of getting that wrong on the other way. So say we, you know, it, it's excessive. Say um, for, for whatever reason, you set it for three seconds of inspiration. Well, what's going to happen? Well, it's still going to get a breath. It's still going to get a delivered um, oxygen. It's still going to get a delivered agent. But you're going to be creating pressure in that chest for longer than you would really want to. And that has implications that we talked about for the effect on venous return. So there's your downside to a prolonged inspiration. It still delivers the gas. It still delivers the volume. Could argue in some senses that it delivers it nice and smooth and evenly. gives chance for the lung to expand and, and all those alveoli and airways to open up fully. But there, that's a kind of another story. And I think you can probably do that with one second, 1.2 seconds, rather than needing to go to three or mm, four. That's kind of like going... <gasps> <laughs> and it's I a really, it's a really <laughs> long inspiration. Yeah. So, so in, exactly. So what you're saying intuitively, it just feels wrong, doesn't it? That's way yeah. too long. So let's let's just say one second. So, so we're a long way to setting up our machine now. We know our volume. We know our inspiratory time. We've got to think about more or less two other things now. One of them is the um, expiratory time or the respiratory rate, whichever way you want to think about it. And this may be dictated by the machine. The machine might give you the option to set the expiratory rate, sorry, expiratory time, 
in which case you've got to do a little bit of maths, haven't you, and work out what the security time should mm-hmm. be. That's or, <laughs> or you've got a machine that wants you to set a respiratory rate, in which case that's fine. And you're going to set a respiratory rate based on what would be the normal uh, respiratory rate for that animal. And again, not to get too excited or too worried about it, but if it's a cat, let's go for somewhere between I don't know, 15 and 20, probably early towards the 20. If it's a, a dog, medium-sized dog, you're going to be down at the 14, 15. Big dog, you're going to be down 10, 11, 12. Um, I say not to worry too much about it. You know, it's a starting point. Two things that we're going to consider. One is that we can always change it. And the other one is that we said earlier that we wanted to try and reduce that CO2 as the starting point for our ventilation. <clears throat> that will help us with overtaking the, the respiratory control. So we probably want to overdo the respiratory rate because we're going to overdo the minute volume. That means we're going to tend to get rid of CO2. We're going to reduce the alveolar CO2. We're going to reduce the arterial CO2. It's going to take away the, the spontaneous drive. So I wouldn't get too hung up about respiratory rates. I would go for a broad respiratory rate and then err on the side of overdoing it rather than underdoing it to start with. And then, as I said, without a capnograph, we're lost. But we, with a capnograph, we're going to look at our entitled CO2 uh, once we're happily ventilating, and we're going to adjust that respiratory rate because that will affect our minute volume uh, ventilation, and we'll adjust it accordingly to get the CO2 in roughly the right position. So, again, not to worry too much about it. For those of you that... Um, don't have or won't have a respiratory rate control, you're going to have to add the expiratory time, the inspiratory time, and divide it into 60 to get your rate. <clears throat> so the inspiratory time is always one. And so easiest thing to remember that three seconds gives you 15 breaths per minute, four seconds gives you 12, five seconds gives you 10. Um, and that's not a bad sort of uh, level. Uh, two seconds gives you 20. So there you are. Yeah, you're going to set it at two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, or five seconds, depending on whether it's something small down at uh, two seconds or something big up at four or five seconds. That's it. Okay. So now I think, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, Courtney, but I think you know, someone could walk up to a machine, irrespective of make or model, set a tidal volume, set an inspiratory time, set a... Uh, either an expiratory time or a respiratory rate. And then the last thing, so there are two things we need to further to consider, is this pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not setting a pressure, you're just setting or possibly setting a maximum pressure that you'd like the animal never to go above. Kind of our safety, isn't it? Our safety valve, exactly, yeah. yes. So inevitably, you deliver a volume into the patient, chest is going to rise, pressure is going to rise, um, and we're looking for aiming for a target of, I said, 10 to start with. Um, so we'd probably want to set a, a safety limit of maybe 15, you know, five or six centimeters uh, above what we're anticipating getting it to. Um, and some machines will allow you to set that. And that was, that's not pressure cycling, that's pressure limiting. We're basically saying to the machine, if it gets to this point, just stop. Um, don't continue to put any more gas in and, and repeat the process, go back allow expiration to occur, and then begin inspiration again. So we've got that pressure upper limit of, say, 15. So we're looking at five to six centimetres above what we're expecting to see. So now we've got the tools, haven't we? We know how to go up and connect that machine 
um, sorry, the machines of the patient and set those values and then start ventilating. And uh, we could simply do that. And if our respiratory rate is sufficiently above the patient's spontaneous rate, you'll find that the, the breath that, that, that fall in between the patient's spontaneous um, breathing uh, are sufficient to then get rid of CO2 and, and take over ventilation. So that, I think, is the basic approach, and that would get you the ability to approach most machines and start ventilating. Does that feel like um, an approach that you would, uh, the sort of thing I think you would teach uh, nurses or, or young vets mm -hmm. in a, as an approach to ventilation? Mm -hmm. I think instead of learning, kind of my way of thinking is instead of going, okay, I have this particular ventilator and this is how I use it. It is a pressure cycling only ventilator. If you get into the mindset of setting mentally those variables or just writing down on a notepad those variables, your tidal volume of 10 mils per kilogram, you're going to go in with a pressure of 10 centimetres of water, you're going to have an inspiratory time of your one second, and then you have your other variables like setting the respiratory rate. I think if you kind of jot those down on paper or you mentally make note of those, like you said, no matter what ventilator you walk in, you know, you walk into a room and there's three ventilators and they all work slightly different. You already have these variables you can apply to every single one of them. Yeah, I think so. And you I know set the basis. There's going to be people out there going, oh, that's all right. Well, Keith, I just heard you talk about that, but your SAVO4, you can't set a volume on it. So I've, I've arrived at the SAVO4 and now I can't follow any of your rules. But actually, <laughs> you can. Let's just go back and look at it. So let's take the SAVO4 as an example of a pressure-cycled ventilator. It's still a volume control ventilator in as much as it's um, a flow-controlled device. It has a continuous flow, which comes from the anaesthetic machine. <clears throat> but no, you can't, you can't set a, a volume. But we did say that our pressure wants to be 10. So let's go up and set our target pressure on our pressure cycle ventilator to 10 centimeters. Okay, we on the SAV can't set the inspiratory time per se, but what we can do is we calculate our fresh gas flow rate based on what is the T-piece configuration, and we'll adjust our fresh gas flow rate so that the reported time for IT on the screen says one second. So we'll set a pressure Inspiratory time. So we'll set a, uh, our pressure for 10, that's on the left-hand uh, control, and we'll set our expiratory time as before, because it has an expiratory time control. So this is, a, say this is a cat, so we're, we're going to, because it, it's got to be on an animal le less than sort of 10 or 12 kilos. So let's assume it's um, um, a cat breathing at 20 breaths a minute. So therefore we need uh, three seconds for the whole cycle. So we need one second for inspiration and two seconds for expiration. So we'll set expiratory time to two seconds. We'll then start ventilating. The ventilator will report the inspiratory time on the screen. We'll adjust the fresh gas flow so we get an inspiratory time of one second. And then it will also helpfully for you calculate and report the res respiratory time and the IE ratio. So you know, knowing what we knew and what I said before, you could go up to the machine, set, set that up. You're just setting a 10 centimeter target and then you're setting the inspiratory time by the fresh gas flow rate, and you're setting the expiratory time explicitly. And there we are. And then you look at your cat graph, and you look at your patient, and if that 10 centimeters, for whatever reason, isn't giving you sufficient chest inflation, and or your cat graph is showing an elevated uh, end tidal CO2, then you 
moderate the rate and or you moderate the pressure. So um, that's something we'll just come back to about what you do in response to CO2 values not being where they want to be. Um, maybe first we need to just think about why they need to be where they need to be and what it means. And also maybe we need to think about some other concepts like minute volume, alveolar volume, alveolar ventilation rate, that sort of thing. But there, you, you can approach a, a different machine with those parameters and, and get going. So I seem to remember being in practice having quite a few different ventilators where I was fortunate enough to work. And there were two different types of cycling methods that I thought we could just really simply clarify. So cycling is when we switch over, isn't it, from in, when does inspiration end and expiration begin? And yeah. you talked about the SAV being a pressure cycling. So it, it you know, you set the pressure and it works its way up to that pressure set, 10 centimetres of water. It delivers um, the gas flow and the volume to 10 centimetres of water and then it goes, ah, oh, now we'll just stop. And then we have the other method of cycling that's really common in practice, which is that volume. So instead of delivering the pressure, you know, you've set your tidal volume to 155 mils for your 15 kilogram dog and then it just delivers that pressure, uh, that volume, 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 volume. Oh, we've reached 150, 160 that we set it to. Ah, oh, let's stop. So that's the... Yeah. That's there a yes, clear absolutely. way to think of describing it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it does, does confuse people, um, cycling methods. So, yeah, basically, it, there are two main cycling methods for a volume control ventilator. There is pressure cycling and there's volume cycling. And it's basically a machine. So the machine is not taking any input from the patient. It has to decide how long is inspiration and it has to decide how long is expiration. So... How does it decide how long is the inspiration? Well, that's when we're talking about volume cycling. So if we're volume cycling, we set a flow for a set time that gives us a fixed volume. So in other words, by setting our inspiration time to one second um, and the volume to um, 155 mils, we've dictated what the flow is and the machine will deliver that flow until it's delivered the whole 155 mils. Mm -hmm. So once it's delivered that whole volume, you know, the volume has been completely uh, delivered to the patient, it stops. That's volume cycling. You determine what volume will be delivered and the machine will do everything it can to deliver that volume. Once that volume is delivered, then um, inspiration stops and then it allows expiration. In other words, it, it allows all the processes, the valves open to allow the patient to breathe breathe out uh, passively yeah so that's um volume cycling and then this is other concept of pressure cycling and with pressure cycling you're still putting in a constant flow this is still a flow controlled or a volume controlled ventilator constant flow but we're going to end inspiration by reaching a, a certain pressure and in those instances we don't know the inspiratory time. We can't because we don't know how the um, patient's chest is going to behave. In other words, we don't know anything about the patient's compliance. And the ventilator knows nothing about the patient's compliance. Um, I think we need to come back and talk about compliance in a moment. Mm -hmm. But we're going to put some flow um, until we get to that target pressure of 10. And then it once it's get to that, 10, then the ventilator says, oh, I finished inspiration. Let's stop that process. So let's now allow expiration. So if we were 
fortunate enough to have a ventilator that does both, um, yep. does both pressure cycling and volume cycling versus one or the other. Do you have a preference or why would you choose to do one method over the other? Okay. I, I think if you're new to ventilation, then start with volume cycling because conceptually it makes sense. It's easy to understand. It's easier to predict and it's easier to implement. You know, it's the bitch bay that's 30 kilos. Okay, tidal volume 300 mils. Mm -hmm. We're going to give 300 mils. We're going to volume cycle this and the pressure will be as a result of that volume. So we'll give that, we'll give that volume until, um, or during the inspiratory period, end of inspiration, end of that given volume, then we'll stop. So volume cycling, I think, is conceptually easier mm -hmm. and it's probably the best way to to start. I quite like it as well. You know, you just do those maths. You're like, oh, yes, 10 times the weight. That's what I'll punch yeah. in and we'll see what we, we get. It seems it feels less scary. Yes, absolutely, yes. And I think once you start to use a ventilator in volume um, cycled mode, you will then start to see what the pressures are. So your 30 kilogram bitch bay that you're routinely ventilating, if, if that, that's the way you, you, know, you want to run things, then you'll see, okay, this one's ventilating at pressure about 14 uh, centimetres, sometimes 15, 14. Okay, you kind of get to know. So mm -hmm. what you could do when you're more experienced is you have this uh, 30 kilogram dog and uh, for reasons that we'll maybe discuss later, you want to pressure cycle this one. So then you would set a target pressure of 15, 14, 15 centimetres of, of uh, water pressure because experience shows you that, that that's that what that dog um, would ventilate normally at. And I think that, that's the problem. To pressure cycle, you need a bit of experience. The volume cycle, you can start off with fundamentals and work from those. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to start volume cycling. It's a nice comfortable math. <laughs> and then, yeah. yeah, like you said, see what pressures you get. And then when you are ready to perhaps flip it over and go by pressure, yeah, yeah. you can end up with the same thing, can't you? So putting in a tidal volume of 200, reaching a pressure of 12 centimetres of water. And then when you decide you want to ventilate at 12 centimetres of water, you see that you get a volume of 200 and you're like, oh, it, it all yeah. makes sense. It all makes sense. That's right. Yeah. So I think we do need to, maybe we'll just talk a little about, bit about compliance now, because that's what determines what our volume does in terms of pressure. And compliance, I think, isn't a concept that comes easily to... Um, uh, to lots of people, so we need to have a think about compliance. What it means, you can't you can't measure it. You can't get your animal in uh, pre-op, listen to it with a stethoscope, squeeze an abdomen, weigh it, do anything that will tell you what the compliance of that chest is. Okay, because what the compliance means is, if I put a certain volume into this chest, how much will the pressure rise? And if it's a nice elastic, bouncy, squeezy chest like a little tiny Labrador puppy, you can mm. imagine that that's going to easily expand when you put some some volume into it. So you may put in your 10 mils per kilo and you'll find that the pressure goes up to 9 or 10 because as you put the volume in, the chest just expands. It's nice and elastic and springy. It just expands and takes up the volume. So it doesn't create a, a lot of pressure. If you put this into a 14-year-old Westie with chronic lung disease <laughs> oh god you have then, to choose that <laughs> then then you've got a lung that and not just the lung in fact the lung 
body doesn't change its compliance much over life, but the thoracic wall does. And now you've got an animal's chest that doesn't want to expand. It's, it's old, it's, it's stiff. And so you put the volume in, and because there isn't the expansion to accommodate the volume, the pressure must go up. You know, whether you remember Boyle's law or not, you know, um, that's just what happens. If you can't, if the if the thing can't expand, the pressure will have to go up. And so it'll go up a lot more rapidly and to a higher degree than it would with the little puppy lungs. So the puppy's got elastic, compliant, very compliant lung. Uh, lungs is the wrong word. Let me use the word um, thorax. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the Westie's got a very non-compliant, stiff thorax. So the two behave differently. We put 10 mils per kilo into each. I say 10 mils per kilo because that's what we decided we would give. So our puppy may only have got a volume of 20 mils, but its pressure only goes up to nine. The Westie may have only got a, a volume of, um, again, say 20, 25 mils, but its pressure may have gone up to... 14, 15, because those lungs are inelastic. So it's the compliance of the patient which dictates the the eventual pressure. Um, and when you're volume cycling, the compliance um, tells you what the pressure will be, but it will always give the volume. Okay. So what's the consequence of that? So you give your patient its tidal volume and its pressure goes up to 12 centimetres of water pressure, anything that's wonderful. Then, the person doing the orthopaedic op and repair puts the, the drill on the patient's chest because he's just, <laughs> he stroke she, sorry. He or she has just, just drilled, it, drilled the hole. And then in order to gain access to the part of the owner or whatever they're doing, they kind of put their elbow and just push down a little bit as they just try and reorientate that, that radial fracture. And... The next breath goes up to 20 centimetres because we've squished the chest. In other words, we've limited its expansion. So we've changed its compliance. So compliance has two two components in as much as there's the natural compliance of the patient. And then there's things we do to it which change the compliance. Um, and that's as, as important. And I mean, to some extent, maybe more important. So if you take your patient with its nice compliant chest and you put it upside down and you wedge it into a um, a cradle and you put the sandbags down the side and you've got it all nice and snug so that the orthopedic surgeon can do whatever they want to do in comfort and without the animal rolling around. Um, it's great, but you may have severely reduced the compliance of your patient. Mm. Um, now, we explained earlier that the, the the chest expands in two ways, so it can expand outwards, but also the diaphragm will expand downwards. So we can still breathe. The patient can still breathe. If we're ventilating, we've got to force that that diaphragm down, um, and that may be more um, resistant to being forced down than the chest would be to being forced outwards. So we may see that we actually get a, a reduction in compliance, and it's harder to push that diaphragm down, so our pressure goes up. What I'm kind of getting at is by squeezing the chest, we've actually reduced the compliance. We're going to make, in volume cycling, we're going to make it such that the pressure will be higher at the end of Mm -hmm. each uh, inspiratory phase. Okay. So other things that will restrict the diaphragm are pregnancy, you know, uh, significant obesity, 
So if you have, say, a cesarean that comes in um, with a fully gravid uterus, you can imagine that that's going to push against the diaphragm. So you're going to have to expect a reduced compliance, and therefore by reduced compliance, it means that the pressure at the end of a volume-controlled inspiration is going to be higher. So the compliance has has a big effect. Um, so I think this leads us to think about the effect of compliance on the patient. And we we said volume cycling is the most common, and we just saw the effects of restricting the volume as a rising pressure. But just very quickly, let's think about uh, pressure cycling and the effect of changing compliance, and what what, what effect will, will it have to the patient? So, just to recap: when you volume cycle, you're given the volume, and the pressure will end up being whatever the pressure will end up being. You know, that's it. So when we when we're pressure cycling, it's it's reversed. We pressure cycle, we ventilate to a pressure, and the volume ends up being whatever the volume will be. Now that has some very protective sort of properties. If you think about it, if you're ventilating a patient, whatever it is, to say 12 centimeters of water pressure, and through actions by staff, um, mechanics, obesity, posture, or whatever, things change, and the lung expansion is restricted, you still only ventilate to 15 centimeters of water, same pressure that, that you, or 12, whatever I said, whatever you set, it's going to ventilate to the same pressure. So that's nice because you're ventilating your patient to 12 centimeters of water pressure. You've got a tidal volume of 70 mils and every every breath is the same. Then you lean on the chest or you restrict it somehow. You ventilate to the same pressure, but the volume drops to 55 mils because that's the change in compliance and that's the effect of, of changing compliance on a pressure cycle ventilator. But the nice thing is that nothing happened to the pressure. The pressure did not go above what you set it. So that's kind of one of the reasons why pressure cycling is, is nice, particularly when you get down to those smaller animals. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're down to your sort of two, 300 grams um, and you're calculating a tidal volume um, of you know, what could be um, around a mil or two, if you get that calculation wrong because the weight is wrong or it's obese or, or whatever, you could be delivering a volume that could give you quite a high, higher than expected pressure. But if you give cycle to a pressure doesn't matter mm-hmm. what the um uh what the compliance is because you'll always cycle to that pressure and you'll never do any damage or do any harm which is why the little sabo3 is so easy or sabo4 is so easy to use for those tiny animals and that's the whole concept behind it so i hope that's helped kind of think about the effect of compliance and i do want to stress that we as the person controlling that patient have an enormous effect on that compliance. Now, do be careful about putting them on their sides and putting sandbags on their chest to hold them still when they're in X-ray. <laughs> do be careful about crossing their legs over the front, um, restricting chest expansion. Do be careful about wedging wedges down the side of, of cradles. It has a, a big effect. Um, and we're affecting the compliance and then we're affecting the, the way that, um, that we're ventilating those patients. So I did say earlier on that we, you know, part of this process is we ventilate and we look at the catenograph and we look at the end tidal CO2. Again, another huge subject in itself, but let's just focus on that end tidal CO2 value. We'll assume that everything's set up nicely. We're not rebreathing. Our inspiratory CO2 is normal. We've got a lovely catenogram uh, trace and our end tidal CO2 um, would hopefully be between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. 
So uh, on that basis, our target's got to be 40. That's where we want to be. 40 millimeters mercury entitled CO2. So what happens? What happens if it wanders? What happens if the compliance is different from what we thought so that our delivered volume um, if pressure cycling is different from what we thought it was going to be? And um, what happens if we haven't selected a sufficient tidal volume of volume cycling? So the net effect of that is going to be that every breath is less in volume than we expected or we wanted or what the patient requires, or the respiratory rate is less. Now, come back to those two concepts, and we talked about them quite a lot before because they're important. We're talking about tidal volume, we're talking about respiratory rate. The product of those two is minute volume, and that's what matters, not the individual parts. It depends what the actual minute volume is for that patient. So if the minute volume for that patient is what the, the patient needs, then our end tidal CO2 will be 40 millimeters of mercury. If the minute volume is less than it requires, that end tidal CO2 value is going to start to rise. So we will be ventilating our patient. Everything's happy and steady, but our end tidal is going 41, 42, 43, 44, 46, 48, 51, 53. Now you're starting to get worried because you think, oh, this has gone outside of the bounds of, of what it should be. What do I do? Well, you've got to increase the minute volume. And the simplest thing to do initially, um, assuming you're at a not nice steady state, is to increase the respiratory rate. That's the simplest thing to do. Um, so let's take that simple example. Our setup is correct. We just increase the respiratory rate or decrease the extra time. Doesn't matter which. Make a change of about 10% and see what happens. And you should see that your 53 becomes 48, 47, 46, 46. And it stops at 46. Well, okay, you haven't quite done it enough, have you? You either increase the respiratory rate again slightly, or if you feel you're at the limit of the respiratory rate, then you need to look at the tidal volume. And before you look at the tidal volume, you need to look at your end, end pressure, your peak inspiratory pressure. I'm assuming we're um, uh, volume cycling here for the moment. So volume cycling, you put in, in the volume, your end tidal's, 46, you'd increase the respiratory rate and your pressure is 10 because that's where we started. But you're actually ventilating a you know, 25 kilo uh, dog. So it's quite reasonable that that 10 could be 12. So I would then increase the tidal volume slightly and look at the end pressure, the peak inspiratory pressure. So let's say 25 kilo dog, you want 250 mils. Let's make that 280 mils. See what our end tidal as entitled uh, uh, CO2 is when we carry on with that. Uh, and that should come down again because we've increased the minute volume. So we use our catagraph to dictate what we do with um, our minute volume. The simplest control is respiratory rate. The secondary is tidal volume if we've not been um, delivering quite enough. Um, and by the same token, you, you, you over egg it, you know, you put the respiratory rate up to, to 30 on your cap because you're worried about your entitled CO2. And you may watch it come down lovely sort of uh, 48, 46, 43, 42, 40, wonderful, 38, 37, 35, 32, 33, 22. And you think, oh, I've overdone it. So, yeah, you've overdone it. Just back off on the respiratory rate. And, you know, things aren't going to go horribly wrong. You know, the, the blood pH isn't going to swing so fast that everything um, goes to mush. 
um, in terms of protein lysis and all those sorts of things. So, you know, it's not it's not drastic. You just change the respiratory rate again and, and pull it back. And it's very responsive. Um, you know, if you've got a steady state condition in the patient where you know it's not febrile, or it's not hypothermic, or there's nothing untoward going on, you change the minute volume and the end total CO2 will change. It's mm-hmm. it's an unassailable fact. You know, those two follow each other. So that's kind of how we're going to use catnography to control our ventilation. And we've got some very simple controls. Now, I'd love to talk, you know, in another podcast about things like spirometry um, and how we use spirometry to maximize our ventilation and maximize things like use of PEEP and all those sorts of things. But that's not what this one's about. This is about how do we approach a, um, a ventilator with a patient and start ventilating. <clears throat> and of course, that raises that that obvious question. We've worked very hard to get their internal CO2 to 40. We've worked very hard to take over their spontaneous breathing. So they're now uh, not breathing on their own. We're breathing on the ventilator. The orthopedic surgeon has finished. They've walked away. And anyone now needs to wake up. But it has no spontaneous drive. Um, so how do we wake it up? And I think this is a, another cause of concern for people who aren't familiar with ventilation. <clears throat> but fortunately, it, it's it's quite simple. You just reverse the processes that you you started with. You want to um, let that end tidal CO2 build up. You want it to go creep from 40 to 45 so that it starts to stimulate the, uh, the uh, medullary center. You want to slightly back off on the tidal volume so that you're not stretching those um, those uh, stretch receptors. So basically, um, if your ventilator doesn't have an, an assist mode, then just decrease the respiratory rate. So you were ventilating at 20 breaths per minute, now drop it to 15. You were ventilating at um, 200 mils, drop it to 180. Your target pressure when your volume cycling was, say, uh, 13, drop it to 11 or 10. So you're giving smaller, lesser breaths, basically. What we've really done is reduce that minute volume intentionally to allow that CO2 to rise. You don't want it to go massively high, um, but you do want to let that CO2 breathe up and you do want to allow spontaneous breathing to occur. And what will happen is if you drop that respiratory rate from 20 to 15 or even down to sort of um, 10 or 12, the ventilator will give a breath, and then between that and the next ventilator breath, then it will start to give a little breath on its own, and you start to see it breathing on its own. And then as that gets more and more intense, you can drop the respiratory rate or turn the ventilator off, but you'll, you'll then have um, return to normal spontaneous breathing. So, Courtney, I think I could talk about a lot more. I don't know how much time we've got left, but um, that, I hope that gives a, a feeling for the approach to ventilation. It's... It's not a scary subject. It's a, I think it's a great subject. Um, and if you approach it with some common sense fundamentals, you can, you know, start ventilating safely um, on any sort of machine just by understanding those fundamentals. Oh no, I, I think you've summed it up really nicely, and you've given us those three key points. That as long as you can kind of do them mentally, put them on paper, and walk in and apply them to any ventilator um, and just provide us with a bit of comfort that it's not really 
you're not going, you're very, very unlikely to set anything on your ventilator that's going to be massively detrimental to the patient. And I know that a lot of people are scared of putting a lot of pressure in and popping their patients, but I have seen you blow into a balloon before <laughs> with a little measurement device there and you reaching pressures in your chest of about what, 75, 80. 85 yeah, yeah. centimetres of water. So it, that one-off breath that potentially is a, a bit too high and a bit much, whew, it's not... In reality, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah, no, yeah right. so, not for the one-off yeah. breath. Yes, yeah, right. You put your cat on and it goes up to 18. You know, you haven't just, you know, destroyed its lung. It's just, you know, a slight overpressure and um, everything will be fine. Continually ventilate it at 18. Yes, you, you possibly lead to some, some problems. Um, okay. I think... Um, uh, one thing I did say at the beginning, I, uh, maybe we sort of just catch up on, I did talk about IE ratio and I haven't covered that, just very briefly cover IE ratio. Um, we talked about inspiratory and expiratory time. Um, the, the, the way that we ventilate with positive pressure causes this problem of reduced cardiac output during inspiration and the recovery time is during expiration. So you'll see a lot of textbooks and things say do not go or allow an inspiration-expiration ratio of less than one to two. Um, and I think that there's some confusion about what less than one to two means. Is one to three a lesser ratio than one to two, or is one to one a lesser ratio than one to two? Um, my my math-type brain says that one to three is a greater ratio than one to two. So I'm going to say that you know, um, things are greater than one to two. In other words, one to three, one to four, one to ten are absolutely fine. Just don't go below 1 to 2. In other words, don't go to 1 to 1.8 or 1 to 1.5 or even 1 to 1. If you think about what 1 to 1 means, it means that inspiration and expiration are exactly the same time. So it's <sighs> there's no time for a pause at the end of expiration. Now, if, you, if the animal can't for whatever reason, due to airway resistance or whatever, breathe out in that one second, then you, you're actually going to start inspiration before expiration has ended. So you'll get a phenomenon called breath stacking, where basically you start to pump the patient's chest up yeah, because it, it, it doesn't quite fully expire. You give a full volume. It doesn't quite fully expire. You give a full volume and you start to get breath stacking. And then you'll see your pressures are just going to go higher and higher and higher. So IE ratio is important. The, the, the value of one to two means it's got twice as long to recover as it did to suffer the, the um, excess pressure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so keep it beyond one to two. Um, that's the, uh, the one thing I was going to mention. Perfect. I think that's a great summary. Okay. Thank you, Corny. Um, I think this ends. Uh, this ends series two. series two. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're looking to to whatever we're going to come up with in series three. Always looking for feedback or suggestions from people, and we have lots of ideas. I'm sure we can talk about ventilation in greater depth we can talk about breathing systems uh, there are all sorts of things uh, we can we can um, come up to talk about but yeah feedback and, and suggestions will all be welcome yeah perfect and if everyone has any quiz questions again just you can pop them through to keith and i on clinical support at burtons.uk.com and we will get back to you yeah well thanks for listening and we'll hopefully catch up in the next series thank you thanks Bye bye
Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to follow our podcast to stay up to date with the latest episode and feel free to share with your team. If you have any questions or feedback for us or simply want to know more about what you've just heard, please send us an email to clinicalsupport at burtons.uk.com. Catch you next time. Thank you.